Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, August 17th, 2010. We're going to get to uh, those stories we didn't get to yesterday and then some. Like I said, it's going to be a busy heresy season this year. I'm in one of those moods. Watch out. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of bizarre, crazy things being said out there. And as a result of it, we've got to do the uh, the work of a Berean. Yeah, God, just... Take what people say, capture it, understand it, and then go, okay, how does this square with Scripture? And if it squares, we go, yay, amen. And if it doesn't, we go, boo, and we throw it away. That's all there is to it. It's it's really not that hard. This is just an exercise in pretty simple stuff. So simple, even I can do it. <laughs> okay, today's program. We're going to dive right into it because we got a lot of ground to cover. We, this is just going to be going to be one of those rip-roaring Hoopla, right home to the parents about editions of Fighting for the Faith. Now, yesterday, we didn't get to two stories, and I want to I want to get to those today. Uh, uh, one of them is um, Joshua Mills' anointed uh, uh, spiritual glory cloths, and uh, <laughs> apparently he's got heavenly oil oozing from his feet, and he's decided to sop it up on some kind of a glory cloth, and you can get yours too. <sighs> Wait till we <laughs> you hear the details of this thing. And then uh, the other pro- the other story we didn't get to yesterday that I want to get to is a good uh, it's a good news article from uh, the Christian Post by Edmund Chua entitled "Knowing the Real Jesus Changes Us." Scholar says it's uh, worth passing along. We'll pass that along today. And then it's been a while since we've heard Brian McLaren, and well, we're going to hear lots of him today. And uh, boy, in preparation for the program today, I have oh, I oh, got to tell you, I. I have been reading the Church Fathers, been reading the Church Fathers. Uh, I've been reading Irenaeus. I've been reading Augustine. I've been reading Cyprian. I've been, I, I, well, I selectively read from Tertullian. Tragic character, by the way. I, I think I've mentioned this. Uh, Tertullian's a tragic character. And we have to look at Tertullian much the same way we look at uh, Solomon. 
Um, Solomon, who, who author of the book of Proverbs, probably Ecclesiastes, I mean, uh, son of King David, starts off well, starts off well. I mean, he's a, he's a, as a contributor to the uh, to the biblical text and doesn't end well. No, he he ends up in heresy. I mean, he uh, he's so accommodating and syncretistic when it comes to the pagan um, religions of his many, 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 many. Many, 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 many wives. Um, did I mention that he had a lot of wives? See, this is a, yeah, this, it just not, no bueno. I, I, you know, I don't understand that. But anyway, uh, he was syncretistic when it came to the pagan beliefs of his many, 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 many wives. And uh, it became a snare to him as well as to all of Israel. And uh, so it kind of sows the seeds of his own destruction and the, uh, I mean, and the tearing apart of the kingdom of Israel at that point. And so, uh, but uh, we look at Tertullian kind of in that same tragic light. You know, here's a man who uh, he's uh, discipled by some of the great lights of uh, the early Christian church. And he has an influence on uh, some of the men who follow him, Cyprian and uh, Augustine. And uh, it's just so tragic that he ends up in uh, Montanism, which is uh, a heresy that's kind of like legalistic pietism mixed with Patricia King's uh, direct revelation from God kind of stuff. Uh, just uh, just a nasty, nasty, pernicious heresy. And and the motivation behind that heresy had to do with the complaint that the church was becoming too institutionalized. Mm-hmm, yeah. Where have we heard that before? Anyway, uh, so when we look at uh, Tertullian, we've got we you know we we look at early Tertullian, and then you know, when scholars when they talk about the rights uh, the writings of Tertullian, they talk about his pre-Montanist uh, views, which obviously his uh, prescription against heretics falls into that. And then you, there's kind of an intermediate phase. Several of his works fall into that intermediate phase, and then there's post-Montanism, and um, and so you have to read him as a Montanist, as a heretic. And it's just, it's sad and tragic to watch that transformation. But his early contributions are just are ama- amazing. But anyway, as I've been reading through the uh, early church fathers, I just, ah, uh, a breath of fresh air. I mean, I, I said yesterday, these guys, these guys are far more bold, brazen, in your face, and just say it the way it is than, than I have ever been on this program. And, and May I grow up to be like them, boy? I tell you, that's that's my goal here. Uh, just uh, and not only that, as you're reading them, there's stuff that you sit there and go, "Aha! I get it." And so today we're going to talk about what I am terming the apostolic meta narrative. We'll explain later. Now, I'm, I'm not I'm not arguing for a secondary source of authority in the Christian church. That's not what I'm arguing for at all, because the apostolic meta-narrative is basically a summary of what the Scripture teaches. But uh, we're going to be listening to, we're going to be looking at the apostolic meta-narrative, what Irenaeus of of Leon uh, entitled the, uh, he called it tradition, what Tertullian referred to as the rule of faith. Uh, When you read the uh, writings of the Apostolic Church Father, there's constant mention of this rule of faith, this apostolic meta-narrative that uh, we have deposited within the church that we can draw on. And we have, it's been here the whole time. And so we'll talk about that today as we uh, review something about Brian McLaren. Brian McLaren was recently interviewed at a Q Talk by Scott McKnight, and the topic was on being a heretic. And uh, we're going to listen to question two and three. I don't know if we're going to get 
to both of them today, but we're going to listen to at least a question two, possibly part of question three and his answer to that today on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And then, oh, yeah, here's a real barn burner. Are you ready for this? Our sermon review today, in light of what we're uh, going to be discovering in the apostolic, uh, in the in the writings of the apostles, this apostolic meta narrative that I'm talking about, we're going to be reviewing a, a Joel Osteen sermon, a recent sermon entitled <laughs> "Signs of God's Favor." Yeah, you you and I, the only way I can uh, describe what we're about to hear from Joel Osteen is, is this is. Um, uh, Christian animism or uh, Christian shamanism. Yeah, I, I, I'm not lying. You, you got to listen to this sermon from Joel Osteen. I mean, he's so far off the uh, biblical reservation right now that uh, those of us within the historic Christian faith, I mean, when we pull out our binoculars to try to look for Joel Osteen to see if we can actually see him on the map or on the horizon, he's so far off the map that uh, uh, we need satellites to locate him at this point because uh, he, he's not... He's not within the realm of uh, the historic Christian faith. No, he's a heretic. <sighs> yeah, it's sad to say that, but that's absolutely true. So that's what we're going to do today on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. we got lots and lots of ground to cover. Uh, so uh, with that in mind, um, it's uh, time for us to play my favorite music. Uh, the, and I play this for any of the folks within the Patricia King gang. <clears throat> yes, Fractured Fairy Tales. For those of you who just hate the truth and would rather, well, exchange the truth for a lie, may I present to you uh, Joshua Mills's holy anointed oil glory cloths. I, I read from the Joshua Will, Mills uh, website, Receive a glory cloth anointed with supernatural oil for your miracle. Quote, God did unusual and extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul so that handkerchiefs or towels or aprons which had touched his skin were carried away and put upon the sick and their diseases left them and their evil spirits came out of them. Apparently, Joshua Mills has now equated himself to the Apostle Paul. Uh, Mills writes, he says, During our recent uh, glory meetings, the supernatural oil has been flowing in significant measure from my hands and my feet. You might want to go see a doctor about that. That does not sound normal. Um, this could be some kind of um, uh, pussy, uh, oozy thing that's going on here, and it just might be chock full of germs and bacterium. Anyway, the supernatural oil is a sign of the uh, commanded blessing of Psalm 133, lie. It's a sign that points towards Jesus Christ and reminds us of the powerful anointing of the Holy Spirit. No, it doesn't. It's a false sign and wonder because you don't preach the uh, the historic uh, biblical gospel. Um, but anyway, we continue. Just last week, this uh, supernatural fragrant oil began to flow from my feet in abundance and as we began to worship the Lord, it began it began coming with the fragrance of roses. This smell is symbolic of the fragrance of Christ. He is the rose of Sharon. Uh, we placed cloth material under my feet so that the oil and fragrance would flow into the fabric. We have gathered the oil in this way so that it can be used as a point of contact, just like the fabric that was taken from the Apostle Paul in order that extraordinary miracles should begin to be released. As I stood up, uh, to preach the word of God, it was only a short time before the supernatural oil began flowing from both of my hands. I was able to lay my hands upon every person in the meeting and anoint them uh, with this heavenly balm. By the way, I'm absolutely convinced if we were to get um, 
uh, that skeptic magician guy. I forget his name, but uh, if y'all know who I'm talking about, there's a there's a magician out there who's a skeptic, and he uh, he debunks all this kind of stuff. I'm sure that if we were to get him to examine Joshua Mills's so-called um, glory, uh, you know, uh, oil releasing from his hands and feet, that uh, we could probably figure out how he does it. I'm absolutely cons- convinced this is a parlor trick, and that it, it, you'll notice that whenever the oil flows from Joshua Mills, he's always wearing long sleeves. I've never never seen a video of the glory flowing from Joshua Mills while he was wearing short sleeves. Yeah, just something I've noticed. I'd like to um, to do some closer examination to confirm the miraculous nature of the so-called anointing oil. Anyway, um, we were receiving an overflow of the up un, uncommon blessing. It flowed and flowed and flowed. And David said, my head has been anointed with fresh oil so that my cup overflows. That's Psalm 23, 5. Do you want to experience this kind of overflowing blessing in your life? This is Joshua Mills speaking. He says, we collected so much supernatural oil on these, uh, on those pieces of fabric that I want to send one to you so that new miracles will begin happening in your life. In the book of Acts, people got saved, healed, and delivered as they came into contact with handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul's body because of the weight of glory that was on his life. No, it's because the miracles were testifying to the truthfulness of the gospel message that he was preaching. Miracles, by the way, are usually signs of buttressing of a message. The problem is, is Joshua Mills does not bring us the the message of the historic biblical gospel or the historic Christian faith, and so these miracles are basically buttressing a false gospel, so they must be rejected. Uh, but and it, it, hey, even if it was legitimate, it doesn't prove that it's from God. That the the way you know, the, the scriptures make it very clear that even Satan and his minions. Uh, are going to be able to perform s- false signs and wonders to mislead, if possible, even the elect. That being the case, mir- miraculous signs and wonders do not verify, uh, not in our days, the, the, that something is of God. You have to test the message that goes with the miracle to see whether it's from God, because Satan can perform miracles to deceive people. Just Yeah, that's, just, that's biblical. Look it up. Anyway, let's see here. So, uh, let's see. Uh, so, uh, it's time for you to, for your family to be saved, your finances to flourish, your body to be healed, and your addictions to be broken. So, I want to send you one of these glory cloths that has been saturated with the supernatural oil that flows from heaven and right through his hands and feet, into which I'm just sitting there going, that is absolutely disgusting. Um, I mean, the last thing I would ever want, uh, seriously, is is some kind of germ-infested so-called glory cloth that has uh, Joshua Mills's toe fungus mixed with some kind of sham oil that he claims is from God. It's not. I mean, that... I, oh, man. I'd rather be boiled in oil than to, you know, come into... Con- I mean, seriously. I mean, I wouldn't touch that thing with a 10-foot pole, tweezers, and a whole bunch of handy wipes and... Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure they're just disease-ridden, filth-ridden, disgusting things that uh, probably will make you sick rather than anything, and will probably send you to hell, too, on top of it. So let's see here. Um, okay, so if you want one of these glory cloths, it's been saturated with supernatural oil that flows from heaven. I believe that there is a supernatural transference of anointing that will happen as you receive this special cloth for your needs. <laughs> scam. Anyways, he says, I also want to give you an opportunity to sow into this realm of God's manifest glory. See, there you go. So see, if you want one of these things, it's not just the, it's just not the, uh, the glory cloth that you're getting. You're getting the opportunity to sow money. 
Yeah, see, when when false prophets like this talk about sowing, what they mean is you sending them money. You want to sow into this realm of God's manifest glory? Send us a seed offering, so that, uh, and then we'll send you a, a glory cloth. I mean, in other words, you're exchanging good money for pretty much magic beans at this point. Um, he says, I believe that without a seed, it's impossible to reap a harvest. Let me read that again. Joshua Mills, really what this is about, it's about you giving him money. He says, I believe that without a seed, it is impossible to reap into a harvest. Every farmer knows this. This is the reason why the farmer will fill their fields with fertile soil and with thousands of seed during seed time, because when it's time to reap, they will be able to enjoy a bountiful harvest. That was the result of their generous seed. Now it's time to sow into the glory realm. It's God's fertile soil in every good and perfect thing that comes from above. So, uh, by the way, if you want to sow into his glory realm, um, that's, uh, you know, you, you got to give money. So there's a, there's a, uh, there's a link there at the bottom there, you know, so he talks more about sowing. And so if you want to sow, Here's what you do. You uh, you send in uh, your offering securely to them over PayPal or send them a check or money order uh, you know, to their new mo- wine. By, by the way, yeah, you got to sow lots of money because he lives in Palm Springs, which is, um, well, you know, very expensive. Yeah, they've got a Palm Springs address there. So, yeah, so if you would like to sow, in order to get this uh, glory cloth that has been soaked with the so-called heavenly oil of glory that has been flowing from Joshua Mills's fungus-infested feet, then um, you got to send them money. And if you se- if your seed offering's big enough, then they'll send you um, a glory cloth anointed with the supernatural oil that has flowed from heaven through the fungus-infested feet of um, Joshua Mills and then straight to you. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm, I, we might want to call the Center for Disease Control to see if uh, this... Uh, thing could be banned as some kind of um, virus-ridden bane upon humanity kind of thing. Anyway, there I didn't get to that yesterday. <laughs> Boy, you really all missed out there. So, And by the, <laughs> by the way, if you want to see this, you can actually see this online at his website. Hang on a second. Let me get that web address because, <laughs> you know what, I'll, I'll, do, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll, this is real simple. Um. Give me until tomorrow. I'll I'll put this in the uh, Museum of Idolatry as an exhibit in the museum. So all you have to do is go to a littleleaven.com and look for foot fungus uh foot fungus uh, glory cloth is what I'll call it and uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll go from there. Oh man, I just yeah. and the sad thing is is that there are people out there who are really genuinely searching for God and the divine and they think that Joshua Mills is a man of God, and like a bunch of foolish dupes uh, they've, who've been hoodwinked into believing this guy is an actual man of God, they're going to be dumb enough to send in their money and get one of these uh, foot fungus um, glory cloths and think that somehow it's supposed to work a miracle and... Um, then when it doesn't work, they'll be too ashamed to admit it, realizing that the only thing that they've gotten, that the only thing they've got was a foot fungus uh, glory cloth and that uh, Joshua Mills, well, he's laughing his way all the way to the bank. All right, moving along here. From the Christian Post, headline read, it reads, uh, Knowing the real Jesus changes us, scholar says. This is a great article. Written by Edmund Chua, Christian Post correspondent. 
Um, let's see. Now, this is regarding a uh, conference that was, I think, in Singapore. Yep, this is uh, about a story uh, that you know, something that took place at the Anglican Diocese of Singapore and the Bible Society of Singapore in St. Andrew's Cathedral. Uh, let me read. The article reads, uh, Jesus changed the lives of people in his day, and there's no reason to suppose that he cannot do the same today, said a New Testament professor. Now, I am no fan of this life change message when it's tied to you know the so-called abundant life. God's going to make your finances better, give you a purpose, uh, make career more satisfying, make things spicier in the bedroom for you, give you better behaved children, and all that kind of nonsense. God doesn't promise any of that as far as the quote the change life which you may get is is a complete radical life change that you may not have even bargained for such as persecution martyrdom and death as a result of your confession of faith in christ so yeah um jesus definitely changes lives just keep that in mind but not all change that comes from jesus is necessarily good at least this side of his um, return uh, the problem Rick Watts highlighted is that many Christians have become too familiar and comfortable with the Gospels. Now, I I hate to quibble right at the beginning of this article because the rest of it's really good, but I have to quibble. And that is is that I don't think too many Christians have become too familiar and comfortable with the Gospels. I No, I, uh, Professor Watts, um, the problem is that Christians don't even know the Gospels. I mean, we don't suffer from uh, 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 basically people who know too much about the Bible. We suffer from a complete, uh, uh, basically, epidemic of biblical illiteracy, despite the fact that we are awash in Bibles. So the problem isn't familiarity with the Scriptures. The problem is, is despite the fact that people might own two, three, four Bibles and maybe even attend a so-called life group, they still don't know hokum when it comes to what uh, God's Word really teaches and what's really in the Gospels. That being said, let me continue reading. Uh, Rick Watts, who teaches at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada, has been conducting lectures on the Gospel of Mark as part of a seminar at St. Andrew's Cathedral in Singapore on Thursday, he showed some 200 pastors and Bible teachers just how outrageous Jesus' claims and actions really were. Now, this is some good stuff. Uh, here was a Jewish man in his 30s, the son of a carpenter, claiming to be Almighty God himself. Watts elaborated, when people brought a paralyzed man before him, he forgave the man's sins... Jesus even read the thoughts of Orthodox Jewish uh, leaders present who took issue with his declaration. That's right. Jesus was capable of reading their thoughts. Then Jesus claimed the authority to redefine Jewish religious law, mm -hmm, uh, which originated from God himself. He also told Jews in his day that they were Israelites only insofar as they accepted and obeyed his teaching. In his parable of the soils, Jesus repeated a lament of God found in the book of Isaiah, thus implying that he is God. Yep. Jesus also did things that only God could do. When a storm threatened to overturn a boat his disciples were uh, that the, his disciples were on, they screamed for his help. Jesus rebuked the storm and it stopped. For the Jews and uh, for the Jews, the event recalled God's command uh, the Red Sea to part from Moses and his people to pass through. Immediately following that incident, Jesus and his disciples got off a place where they met a man possessed by evil spirits. The spirits who had called themselves legion begged Jesus to permit them to go into a large herd of pigs feeding nearby. When they did so, the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and they drowned. Reading Mark's account, the Jews would not have missed the parallel 
uh, with the way God closed the sea on Pharaoh and his army who pursued the Israelites. Yeah, and keep in mind also, um, the, the, a Jewish pig farmer? Yeah, that's not kosher. So there's uh, some judgment going on there too. Moreover, it showed Jesus doing something no one else had ever done. He cast out demons as Isaiah prophesied God would do. Like God, he was able and willing to heal and to help his people. Jesus performed many healing miracles, cared for the people as a gentle shepherd, and fed them. Furthermore, Jesus' life recalled the exodus in which God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. The Jews, immersed in Old Testament scripture and history as they were, would not have failed to see how most of the miracles or mighty acts were performed in the first eight chapters. This recalls the time Moses and Aaron performed ten mighty acts, forcing Pharaoh to release the Israelites from captivity. The Jews would also not have missed the resemblance between what happened on Mount Sinai and on the Mount of Transfiguration. On Sinai, God descended in a cloud, gave Moses the Ten Commandments and instructions for building a tabernacle for sacrifice and worship. When Jesus was transfigured, Moses and Elijah conferred with him just as with God previously. Apostle Peter suggested building three tabernacles for them. Suddenly a glorious cloud descended. God declared Jesus as his son and told the apostles to listen to Jesus. Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, recalling the dress of the Jewish bridegroom. It brings to mind God's promise that he will come as a bridegroom of the church. Mark goes on to relate the way Jesus tried to tell his disciples about his journey to the cross. This section is bracketed by two miracles of healing of the blind. To the Jews, recovery of sight referred to understanding God's truth. Then, just as the Israelites entered the promised land, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. The prophecies in Malachi run uh, parallel to the record of Mark. Malachi prophesies that God will send a messenger before he comes to his temple. God warned that if the people do not repent, he... He would curse the land. Mark begins with the coming of John the Baptist, who is dressed like Elijah and calls the Jews to prepare the way of God. The Jewish leaders reject John and Jesus. Symbolically, Jesus cleanses the temple in Jerusalem. He also curses a fig tree, which, according to uh, Rick Watts, represents Israel. The temple is finally destroyed by the Romans. So uh, that's that's the article, and you know there's some good stuff here. There's some good insight pointing to Christ and how, uh, you know, the, the real Jesus, the biblical. See the thing that's the compelling Jesus. Read the Gospels. Have the pastors preach from the Gospel lesson Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and you're going to be confronted with this Jesus. And 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 the parallels between what Jesus did and how they were foreshadowed, and and there was there were types of what was what Jesus was doing in the Old Testament. You can flesh that out. It'll all the more show the impact of really who Jesus is and what he did and what he accomplished, and how all of the scriptures are really about him, and God's saving act in history to save humanity by sending Christ. God in human flesh to the cross to die for the sins of the world. Now, keep in mind, Jesus' substitutionary work begins at the incarnation. When we talk about the substitution of Christ, it's not just that Jesus was our substitute on the cross. Jesus was also our substitute in life because his perfect sinless righteousness is imputed to us as if we're the ones who lived it. So therefore, Jesus' substitutionary work begins in his incarnation where he li- he lives a perfectly sinless life under the law of God. And so 
on the cross, his sin is given to us, and by faith, his righteousness is given to us. It's called the great exchange. It's great stuff. If you want to read more about it, read Philippians chapter 3. All right, we're up on our first break, and when we come back, we've got some work we got to do with Brian McLaren. So put your thinking caps on, get your Bibles out, and well, well, we'll see how this all goes. Uh, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith, or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith for that matter, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch. And then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death.
Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so. And the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, if you want a Joshua Mills foot fungus oil anointed cloth, it could probably kill you. You might want to have that thing steam clean to get everything out of it. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Not much money to you, but much money to us. Why? Because the more people that sign up uh, for our uh, for our crew makes it possible for us to smooth out uh, the ups, the peaks and valleys in our giving so that uh, we don't have uh, our lean months aren't as lean, uh, if you know what I mean. 
so that we can pay our bills. Kind of paying our bills is su- sort of kind of important. But anyway, and of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now it's uh, time for a Brian McLaren update, which... When the moon is in the seventh This is our Brian McLaren update music. Now, just a quick question. If I was doing the white man overbite and kind of, you know, grooving out while playing that song, is that a sin? Email me. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Anyway, uh, Scott McKnight recently uh, interviewed uh, Brian McLaren at a Q Talk. Uh, Q Talks are, I think, uh, put on by uh, Gabe Lyons and uh, Kinnaman, uh, both of whom are not, are dangerous, dangerous people. Anyway, um, uh, McKnight, who seems to, you know, been, who's kind of like the, you know, the guy who knows emergent and emerging, you know, better than anybody else, um, is interviewing Brian McLaren on being a heretic. And uh, I'm skipping question number one, and we'll go to question number two and kind of pick up from there. Because, I mean, McLaren apparently, you know, he doesn't even see the danger of his own thinking. And I want to point out some, uh, he says some things that are rather eye-opening. So with that, uh, here's uh, Scott McKnight, and he's going to ask Brian McLaren a question. And uh, we'll we'll just, you know, dive in and comment as we need to. And we'll run a little bit long in this segment, although I don't know if we're going to get, if we're going to complete this. Whatever we don't do today on this uh, McLaren stuff, we'll see if we can pick it up tomorrow. Here we go. Maybe how people think. Thanks. Um, generous, uh, this one is a, a connection between generous orthodoxy and a new kind of Christianity. Okay. Generous orthodoxy charted a course on which you wanted to embrace the breadth of historic Christian orthodoxy and its many variations, and you have often said you affirm the classic creeds. Okay, now that's important. He, say, he says he affirms the classic creeds. Hang on to that thought. When he says he affirms the classic creeds, that thought, hang on to it. He affirms the classic creeds. No, he doesn't. And by the way, in generous orthodoxy, there are people that he considers to be orthodox that clearly are not. So he's got such a broad definition of orthodox that uh, pretty much everybody's in, including Muslims. But a new kind of Christianity appears to say that the faith of the Western Church needs to be put behind us for something new. Many of us wonder if you have abandoned generous orthodoxy. How do you square what you are rejecting in a new kind of Christianity, the Greco-Roman narrative? Now, the Greco-Roman narrative, by the way, um, that's the historic creedal meta-narrative of Scripture. Let's continue. With your earlier affirmations of generous orthodoxy. Mm, uh, that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, first of all, Scott, I would never, ever, ever say that the faith, what is it, the faith of the historic church should be put behind us. I would never say that. 
Uh, yeah, but he, how is he defining the word faith there? Uh, to me, the faith of the historic church is exactly what we should keep. The- so the faith is separate from the beliefs of Christianity. That, that's what's going on here. Faith meaning dependence on God, openness to the Holy Spirit, connection and confidence in God. We should never put that behind us. But Did you I- hear how we define that? Backing this up. Listen again. Earlier affirmations of generous... First of all, Scott, I would never, ever, ever say that the faith, what is it, the faith of the historic church should be put behind us. I would never say that. Uh, To me, the faith of the historic church is exactly what we should keep. The faith meaning dependence on God. So the faith is dependence on God. Openness to the Holy Spirit. Openness to the Holy Spirit. Connection and confidence in God. Connection and confidence in God. That's the faith. Notice a problem there? That's not what the Bible teaches, nor is it what the church has confessed the historic Christian faith to be. Let's continue. ...and confidence in God. We should never put that behind us. But I do think there are dimensions of our faith after 2,000 years that we need to go back and look at and say there seems to be a problem there. And this issue of that I call in the book the Greco-Roman narrative, I think... Is really deserves a second look. And some people are going to say, no, it doesn't. That's inherent to the faith. Just to give you an example, I, I mean, to me, the, at the essence of that narrative is it, I think that way of looking at the world, we're the insiders, we're the chosen, we're the elite, we're the elect, we're the saved. They're the lost, they're the non-Christians, they're the damned, they're the other, they're the outsider. That dualism and that way of looking at an us versus them approach to the world that I think is inherent in that it, it, it might be avoidable. And I hope people like you. So he thinks the problem is, is, okay, so what's the problem with that narrative? It creates an us versus them mentality. Now, here's the question. Is that what we find in Scripture? And is that what we find in, the, in early Christianity? The answer is absolutely. He thinks there's something wrong with the narrative. No, there isn't. That's exactly what the narrative does. It talks about those who have repented and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, the saints, versus those who are still under the wrath of God, those who will not repent and refuse to bend the knee to Christ. And he thinks that's the problem. So in his way of thinking, the higher good is apparently some kind of a Christian faith that sees God in everybody and creates a unity based upon, uh, well, what what they would call the Imago Dei, you know, that everybody bears the image of God. Let's continue. Can succeed in steering people away from this. But historically, it has repeatedly resulted in oppression and violence and horrible things that are opposed to the way and spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, stop. Okay. So he's saying that there are people out there who've taken that narrative and, and basically engaged in, in crimes of colonialism. Okay. And so this narrative is inherently at the, is the fundamental culprit when people go and, and in the name of Christ do evil things, you know, enslave people, oppress people. And, and by the way, there have been some terrible things done in history in the name of Jesus. No doubt about it. But he says the culprit is the narrative. This 
Greco-Roman narrative. No, it's not a Greco-Roman narrative. This is the biblical narrative. And on top of it, this is the meta-narrative given to us by the apostles. Okay? No, when people basically do evil things in the name of Christ, the narrative is not at fault. It's the sinner who twists Christ's word and the scripture and does things that are contrary to what God's word teaches. For instance, let's think about the... um, uh, that that also wonderful event in human history known as the uh, as the Crusades. Okay, does the Bible? I mean, does the did the Bible? It, 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 were the Crusades consistent in keeping with biblical teaching and what Christ taught? No. Was the narrative at fault? No. The narrative was not the culprit. It was a bunch of sinners misreading the scriptures who were at fault. For the Crusades, same with the Inquisition and other things. Hey, in the Lutheran tradition, okay, during the Thirty Year Thirty Years' War, there were some terrible things done by Lutherans to Calvinists. I mean, there were baptisms that took place at the hands of Lutherans. Uh, Lutherans were baptizing Calvinists until the bubbles stopped. That was um, that was not because Lutheranism or Christ taught that. It's because evil people took things in their own hands and did evil deeds. You have to come to grips with it. Sinners are the ones who sin. The narrative, the salvation narrative, the narrative that teaches in Scripture that man was created good, that he rebelled against God. Prophet Hosea, I think, makes this clear. Adam transgressed the covenant of God and became sinners. And every single one of us now is by nature a sinner. There's been a corruption uh, within human nature. And that corruption, so that everybody who is born naturally, a descendant of Adam and Eve, is born sinful and rebellious, dead in trespasses and sins, and a sinner against God. And that we are in need of a Savior, and that Christ calls us to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Those who repent and are forgiven through the work of the Holy Spirit are the ones who are saved. And those who persist in unbelief and sin are already damned. Not that they will be. They're already still under the wrath of God. Their judgment is is, is is already been pronounced, per se. And that we're to call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus', Jesus name. McLaren says that's a Greco-Roman narrative. No, it's not. It's what the apostles taught from the beginning, and I'll prove it. Okay? Now, I know you all don't have a copy of the uh, Church Fathers handy, and it's not like we, you know, we keep a copy of these. Plus, I mean, there's multiple uh, things, but I want to point something out to you. Uh, something I've been working on, um, and that is, is that um, as I've been reading the Church Fathers, especially the Church Fathers and the writings against heretics. Okay, boy, the Church really early on would take heretics, heretics to task. One of the guys who took heretics to task was a gentleman by the name of Irenaeus, and he, I think he was the Bishop of Lyon, which is is in France. Uh, and you know, he he was an evangelist, a church planter, a church father, a bishop, and uh, just an all around saint, if you know what I mean. And uh, he learned the Christian faith from Polycarp. Polycarp learned the Christian faith from the Apostle John. Okay, so that's that's your tight succession right there. You got Jesus teaching John, John teaching Polycarp, Polycarp teaching Irenaeus. Okay, that's your uh, you know. So he learned he he learned uh, uh, part, he was discipled in part under uh, the work of Polycarp. Okay, now he has a book that he wrote in you know about 180 A.D. entitled Against Heresies. And if you read this work, it's a fantastic work. The beginning 
part of, of, of this book against heresies is just bizarre. The reason why it's bizarre is because this this uh, this work that entitled Against Heresies was written against two groups in particular. One, the Valentinians, which is a Gnostic sect, and the Marcionites. Okay, and uh, the Valentinians. I mean, this Gnostic sect. They had this weird, bizarre uh, meta narrative, this interpretation of scripture that they had. That apparently, you know, the 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 thing that we are all created by was what's called the demiurge, and that there were thirty different aeons, and um, and, and the aeons are named after like uh, virtues, truth, love, mercy. It just it's bizarre stuff, and when you read it, you feel like you're reading a sci-fi no- novel because it's like what, and. The Valentinians claim that uh, if you just read the scriptures through the lens that they provide you with, that uh, you know they 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 try to use scripture to try to prove that Jesus taught this stuff and hinted at it because it's secret knowledge that the you know that you have to be initiated in order to get this other demiurge eons and all this kind of stuff and it's just crazy. Okay, well in book three of Against Heresies, Irenaeus. He says some very interesting things, and he refers to something that he calls the ancient tradition. Okay, now it's called the ancient tradition. He about 180 A.D., and we're talking at this point. Uh, this is within a hundred years of the uh, of the death of the apostles. And so, I mean, you know, uh, you go back to 80 A.D. Some of the apostles are still alive. The apostle John is still alive. Um, you go back just to 30 years before that into the 50s, and you got the majority of the apostles are still alive at that point. And just go 20 years prior to that, you got Jesus alive. So, um, I mean, Jesus, you know, crucified, resurrected, and descended roughly 33 AD. Okay. And it just, we'll just say that, you know, within two or three years, give or take two or three years on either side of that date. Okay. And then, and then, you know, just within, so really about 150 years after Jesus walks the earth, I mean, what, what happened in U.S. history 150 years ago? I mean, um, 150 years ago, well, that puts us about, you know, what, the, just right before the Civil War? You know, am I doing my math right? Well, yeah, yeah, that, 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 you understand what I'm saying. Okay. So 150 years ago puts us right about the time of the Civil War. So that's what's going on, and we—that's we, really within recent memory. There's, you know, not a lot of mythologies that have crept up around then. Okay, but Irenaeus of Leon, in Book Three, Chapter Four. Okay, Book Three Against Heresies, Chapter Four. Let me read to you what he wrote regarding the ancient tradition, which, by the way, is nothing less than an apostolic meta narrative. The, the apostles not only gave us the scriptures, they gave us a summary of the scriptures, which is the interpretive key to understanding it. And watch what happens here. All right, I read from Irenaeus. Since, therefore, we have such proofs, it is not necessary to seek the truth among others, which it is easy to obtain from the church, since the apostles, like a rich man depositing his money in a bank, lodged in her hands, this is the church's hands, most copiously all things pertaining to the truth, so that every man whosoever will can draw from her the water of life. For she, the church, is the entrance to life. All others are thieves and robbers. On this account are we bound to avoid them, but to make choice of the thing pertaining to the church which utmost diligence, and to lay hold of the tradition of the truth. Now, when you think of tradition, when we think of traditions, we're, you know, we think of traditionalism. Now, what he's referring to here, this tradition he's talking about, 
is the apostolic meta-narrative. I'll prove it, and we continue. For how stands the case? Suppose there arise a dispute relative to some important question among us. Should we not have recourse to the most ancient churches with which the apostles held constant intercourse and learn from them what is certain and clear in regard to the present question? For how should it be if the apostles themselves had not left us writings? Would it be not be necessary in that case to follow the course of the tradition which they handed down and those to whom they did not commit the churches? To which course many nations of those barbarians who believe in Christ do, do assent, having salvation written in their hearts by the Holy Spirit without paper or ink and carefully preserving the ancient tradition. So here's what Irenaeus is basically talking about here. Back in those days, keep in mind, pen and paper, expensive stuff, okay? Uh, the, the ability to get a hold of paper and, the, and and to be a man of letters. I mean, you were a scribe at that point. That was a, that was a good way to make a living. Okay, so in a in an era where Bibles were not um, plenty, and let, let's say you decided that you were going to head off and you were going to share the faith of of uh, uh, the Christian faith, and you didn't have the money to you know have a Bible copied and made for you, what were you going to do? Well, you had at that point what was called the ancient tradition, okay? The summary, the the summary of the scriptures that you can carry around in your mind because it was so short and so easy to understand that you could then talk to barbarians at this point uh, about what the Christian faith is, even if you didn't have pen and paper, and you can, through the preaching of the gospel and the summary of the scriptures— appropriately catechize barbarians who were converting to Christianity, and they would be brothers and sisters and hold the Christian faith and understand what the truth is and know enough of the Christian faith to reject heresies based upon this ancient tradition, this summary meta-narrative, if you would. Let me continue. All right, so believing in one God, so here it is, to which course many nations of those barbarians who believe in Christ do assent, having salvation written in their hearts by the Holy Spirit without paper or ink and carefully preserving the ancient tradition, they believe in one God, the creator of heaven and earth, and of of all things therein, by means of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who, because of his surpassing love towards his creation, condescended to be born of the virgin, he himself uniting man through himself to God and having suffered under Pontius Pilate and rising again and having been received up in the splendor shall come again in glory, the savior of those who are saved and judge of those who are judged and sending into eternal fire those who transform the truth and despise his father and his advent. What did that just sound like to you? If you are familiar with the creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, this ought to sound really, really familiar to you. The reason why is because, quote, the ancient tradition that Irenaeus is referring to here, this summary of the scriptures, this summary meta-narrative of the scriptures, even before the Apostles' Creed, even before the Nicene Creed, reads just like the creeds. The, the, so here's basically what's going on here, is that the apostles gave us the scriptures, 
And they also gave us the interpretive key to the scripture, an authoritative meta narrative, if you would. And that authoritative meta narrative is nothing less than what, you know, the early church referred to as, quote, the tradition. And by the way, Tertullian picks up on this and he doesn't call it the tradition. He calls it the rule of faith. And what is it? It's the creed. (laughs) Plain and simple. So let me continue, though. So notice here that Irenaeus is making the case that a barbarian can be a Christian even if he doesn't have the scriptures, if he's taught this ancient meta-narrative which teaches that they believe in one God, the creator of heaven and earth, all things therein, you can think visible and invisible, by means of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who, because of his surpassing love towards his creation, condescended to be born of the virgin, he himself uniting man through himself to God, this is incarnation, having suffered under Pontius Pilate and rising again, having been received up in splendor, shall come in glory, the savior of those who are saved, the judge of those who are judged, and sending into eternal fire those who transform the truth and despise his father's advent. So that's that's the ancient tradition. That's the rule of faith. We were given not only the scriptures, but a summary of them in such a way as to order the script in order to understand the scriptures properly. And that's what that is. So those of you who attend Protestant churches that don't use these, use the creeds, the creeds were really important because the creeds gave us an interpretive meta narrative for which we can understand the scriptures with and we can summarize the Christian faith. Okay. Let me read, um, Today, uh, let me, I'll read to you both the, uh, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. Now, let me read the Apostles' Creed. This is, uh, this is more of the, of the Latin Creed, but tell me if this isn't the exact same thing. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell. Third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. See, for when I was growing up in American evangelicalism, I had no no admiration for the creeds at all. I thought they were just you know, kind of like an appendix. I mean, they, what do we need those for? Yeah, well, see, the reason why the church had the creeds was because what the creed summarized was the rule of faith, the understanding of the scriptures, the key to unlocking the whole thing, which, by the way, these creeds are are summaries of the scriptures, so they derive their authority from the scriptures, and they tell us how to correctly understand the scriptures. Let me give you the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men 
and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. Third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Now, if you subscribe, if you understand the importance of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, then you understand how these creeds were used in in ancient times. They were used as a confession of the apostolic faith, a summary of the scriptures, a correct meta-narrative in regard to the scriptures, and the creeds were used against heretics. In fact, um, Irenaeus rejects one of the reasons he rejects the Valentinians and the Marcionites is because what they teach was never heard before in the it was never heard before in the churches and it contradicts the apostolic tradition it contradicts the creed and what was the creed that Irenaeus confessed what was the ancient tradition Irenaeus writes again He believes in one God, the creator of heaven and earth, all things therein, by means of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became, uh, who because of his surpassing love towards his creation, condescended to be born of the Virgin, he himself uniting man to himself to God, having suffered under Pontius Pilate, rising again, and having been received up in splendor, shall come in glory, the Savior of those who are saved, and the judge of those who are judged." Yeah, let me uh, let me read Tertullian here. Now, Tertullian in his book, uh, Prescription Against Heretics, chapter thirteen, he summarizes it. He call he doesn't call it the tradition. He calls it the rule of faith. But it's the same thing. They're synonymous. Watch watch the flow of this and tell me if this isn't exactly the same thing. Tertullian writes. He says now with regard to this rule of faith that we may from this point acknowledge what it is which we defend it is you uh it is you must know that which prescribes the belief that there is only one god that he is none other than the creator of the world who produced all things out of nothing through his own word first uh, first of all sent forth his word called his son and under his name was seen in diverse manners by the patriarchs heard at all times in the prophets and at last brought down by the spirit of power of the father into the virgin mary and was made flesh in her womb and being born of her went forth as jesus christ thenceforth he preached the new law the new promise in the kingdom of heaven worked miracles and having been crucified he also rose again on the third day having ascended into the heavens he sat at the right hand of the father sent instead of himself the power of the holy ghost to lead such as believe and will come with glory to take the saints to enjoyment of everlasting life and of heavenly promises, and to condemn the wicked to everlasting fire after the resurrection of both these classes shall have happened together with the restoration of their flesh. This rule, as it will be proved, was taught by Christ and raises amongst ourselves no other question than those which heresies introduce and which make men heretics. So, When you study church history, 
you then understand what the proper function of the creeds has been and always will be. The creeds set down and summarize the scriptures for us correctly so that we can interpret them profitably in regards to what God has done for us in Christ. Well, what, not, not only what God has done for us, but really what the Holy, the Blessed Holy Trinity does for us uh, in the Father, in, his, in creation, uh, in Christ, in redemption, in the Holy Spirit, in sanctification. It's all there for us. And so what you have here when you read the, when you read the ancient church fathers and their writings against heretics, they r- refer to the scriptures as well as to the ancient tradition or the rule of faith, which is nothing less than a summary of how the apostles taught the scriptures. And when you hear somebody say something that contradicts the creeds, you know that you're not hearing the historic Christian faith. When you hear something that is being pawned off as the historic Christian faith that doesn't even remotely sound like these ancient creeds, then you know you're not being taught the historic Christian faith. That was the role that these things took. So that's why the creeds were so important. And so here you've got McLaren claiming that he, you know, he subscribes to these creeds, yet these creeds are the very creeds that condemn him. The Greco-Roman narrative that he condemns is the very narrative, is the very meta-narrative given in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and they condemn him and as well as other heretics. And I just read Tertullian and Irenaeus both, ancient, we're talking guys from the 2nd century, Irenaeus, who can tie his faith back to Polycarp and Polycarp back to the Apostle John and the Apostle John back to Jesus. That's how tight that circle is. And he doesn't talk about a generous orthodoxy. He talks about those being condemned to hell and eternal fire who transform the truth and despise the Father and his advent. I'm telling you. Yeah, McLaren is just so far off the reservation here. He's not dealing, he's dealing off the bottom of the deck. He's, this is all sleight of hand tricks. So with that in mind, listen to what he, can, what he says. I think that narrative is complicit in a whole series of atrocities that Muslim people know about, that Jewish people know about, that the Native Americans know about, that African Americans know about. So he's attacking the summary of the Christian faith that's been handed down to us from the apostles to the church and on through history as being complicit in atrocities. No, Brian, that meta narrative, that summary of the Christian faith is not complicit in atrocities. It's people who are the ones who were guilty of those atrocities who did things contrary to what the faith and the scriptures teach. See what he's doing? He's attacking what the Christian faith has historically believed, taught, and confessed under the name that he thinks that that's what's complicit in the atrocities. No, it's not. About that women know about, that lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual people currently know about, that right now Muslims know about. It's like everybody sees it but us. And so I really do think that's a problem. Here, I guess the way to say it is, I think that narrative is the ungenerous thing that's been wrapped up with orthodoxy, and I think we would be both... Uh, No, that narrative defines orthodoxy. Notice he's trying to drive a wedge between the summary of the Christian faith that's been handed down to us 
in Scripture and as uh, basically the the apostolic meta narrative given to us in the creeds, trying to drive a wedge between the historic Christian faith and what the the Christian faith has confessed. No. That narrative is what the Christian faith has confessed, and it defines orthodoxy, and those who oppose it have always been heretics, just like Brian McLaren. More orthodox and more generous to, I would say, try to articulate the faith apart from that narrative. I, don't, I think you would say, let's clean it up. Let's talk about it in more restrained and responsible and thoughtful ways. I'm happy for people to, to take your approach I hope people can, you know, make room for me to take my approach. No, I will not. You're a heretic. One other thing I'll just say on that is that, um, you know, in the Christian tradition, you either can read the Christian tradition and try to find the one line that you think is legitimate and everything off of that line is illegitimate. Or else you can look at the Christian tradition and say, we have this whole range of different ways of seeing things. And that range through history gives us a lot of freedom. And I think what I'm advocating does go all the way back through church history to the very beginning. It doesn't. Not if you realistically and honestly look at church history. Read the early church fathers against the heretics. They were not generous in their orthodoxy. McLaren, I don't think McLaren would have said a peep against the Valentinians. I don't think he would have said a peep against Marcion. And yet the early church unified, branded as heretics and threw men out who were teaching doctrines that deviated from the historic Christian faith, the tradition given to us by the apostles in their word and the summary that they've given us. They rejected as heretics men who brought other doctrines if you see he's trying to say well if we you know i think this is more consistent with no church history shows that there you know no heretics were heretics just read the writings of the ancient church fathers you can't say this with a straight face when you understand really truly what the ancient church wrote and said mclaren here is really really playing fast and loose with the facts and what he's saying is not true he is a heretic, and the gospel he brings is not the biblical gospel, and it's not the historic Christian faith. He basically wants us to believe that Muslims are followers of God in the way of Muhammad. We're just followers of God in the way of Jesus. That's not the historic Christian faith. That's heresy. All right, we're up on our second break. We'll play more of this tomorrow, so stay tuned. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I, 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 
I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. We're well into hour number two here. It's time for a Joel Osteen sermon. Yeah. I just am a glutton for punishment. good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Joel Osteen's ministry down there in Houston, Texas. The name of the sermon is Signs of God's Favor. 
signs of God's favor. How do you know that God has favor for you? Apparently there are signs for you to be looking for. Oh, good night. You might need to pull out your Bible. I will have to be doing some corrective work here today. Now, let me kill the music here. I think you got the idea. Uh, before we get into that, watch how a creed can re- how this creed can really be helpful. I'm going to read to you the Nicene Creed. Okay, this is a summary of the historic Christian faith, and we've learned from Irenaeus as well as Tertullian and from other church fathers that this summary of the Christian faith is consistent with the summary of the Christian faith handed down to them by the apostles. It gives us a proper way of ordering God's word so that we can know whether or not we're hearing the historic Christian faith, the true gospel, if you would. Okay, Here it is, the Nicene Creed. Now, I want you to compare what you hear Joel Osteen say in his sermon to see if it jives with this historic Christian faith as given to us from the ancient church. I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. And he was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, and he was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and he ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end." I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and is glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. With that, let's dive into our sermon review. Here is Joel Osteen. Signs of God's favor. God bless you. Now, before I uh, get too far into it, that music is part of the sermon because it intrudes it. Discover the champion in you. Is that consistent with the Nicene Creed, which I just read, which is a summary of the historic Christian faith? Discover the champion in you. Immediately, the Nicene Creed goes, eh, nope, that doesn't fit with the Nicene Creed. Who for us men and for our salvation? Jesus came down and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. Nothing in the Nicene Creed about discovering the champion in you. See how these things are handy? That's how the ancients used their creed. Always a joy to come into your homes. We love you, and we know God has great things in store. 
If you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. I promise you, we'll make you feel right at home. But thanks so much for tuning in today, and thank you again for coming out. I like to start with something funny each week, and I heard about this old country farmer. He was taking his nephew camping for the first time. His nephew had five degrees and was one of the smartest men alive. They set up their tent and quickly fell asleep. In the middle of the night, the farmer woke up his nephew and said, Look up, what do you see? The nephew said, I see millions of stars. He said, I know that, but what does it tell you? He said, astronomically, it tells me there are billions of galaxies. Meteorologically, it tells me it's going to be a beautiful day. Theologically, it tells me God is a great creator. What does it tell you? The old farmer shook his head, said, it tells me somebody stole our tent. All right, hold up your Bible and say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name. Now stop. That little creed that uh, Joel Osteen just had everybody recite, is that consistent with the faith that is prof- uh, professed and summarized in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed? Let me read the Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> Again, I read, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. No, I I don't think uh, Joel Osteen's creed is consistent with either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, especially the Nice, uh, as also the Athanasian. Let's let's hear this again. Let's see. I will be taught the Word of God. Back it up just a smidge here. All right, hold up your Bible and say it like you mean it. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess. My mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same in Jesus' name. All right, just right there. Just comparing creeds, comparing what's being said to the creeds. You're sitting there, well, the creeds aren't authoritative. Uh, the, the creeds are authoritative in the sense that they are correct summaries of God's Word. They are derived from God's Word, and they show us the proper ordering of God's word so that we can understand it properly and what the historic Christian faith is and what the gospel is. So just looking at the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and understanding how to use them correctly, the way the church has used them correctly in the past, we can immediately say we've got a problem. Joel Osteen is not bringing us the historic Christian faith. He's bringing us a completely different creed, a completely different take on scriptures that's not consistent with what the church has taught from the beginning, a different meta-narrative, 
a meta-narrative that focuses on me rather than the work of God. Because you'll notice in both the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, the emphasis is on the work of God for us. Here, in Joel Osteen's little creed, it's apparently it's all about me. You see, Joel Osteen doesn't bring us the historic Christian faith. He's a heretic. He brings us a different creed and a different faith altogether. God bless you. I want to talk to you today about signs of God's favor. When God puts a promise in our heart, he will always give us some kind of sign that the promise is going to come to pass. What? (laughs) Huh? When God puts a promise in our heart, he will always give us a sign that it's going to come to pass? Where is that taught in the Bible? Nowhere. This is this is just pure fantasy, pure mythology. Something to boost our faith, to encourage us. It may be something small. A friend makes one comment. They don't even realize it, but it's exactly what you needed to hear. Something lights up on the inside. That's a sign from God. I've had people tell me after the service, Joel, when you mention this in your message, it's just what I needed. I think to myself, I didn't even talk about that. You know what that is? God causing them to hear what they needed to hear. Or maybe you're reading the scripture and all of a sudden a verse jumps out at you. You feel 10 feet tall. You know God's in control. You know he's fighting your battles. That's a sign from God. A couple of months after my father went to be with the Lord and I stepped up to pastor the church, there were so many changes taking place things that were going on, at times I was tempted to feel overwhelmed like I wasn't able to do it. One day when it seemed like it was the worst ever and it wasn't going to work out, I went to bed so concerned. But when I woke up the next morning, I could hear myself singing a song of praise. Not out loud, but on the inside, I was singing it over and over. That song we used to sing, You, O Lord, are a shield unto me, the glory and the lifter of my head. I woke up refreshed, re-energized, knowing that I was well able. That was a sign from Almighty God. The scripture talks about how God will confirm his word with signs following. Really? You care to uh, lay that out doctrinally, theologically, using God's word in context, I'd really like to see you build that case. I'm not familiar with this teaching from Scripture at all. We often think that just means when someone ministers that there'll be salvation and healing and miracles. And yes, that's true. But it also means when God puts a promise in your heart, He will confirm that promise by showing you some kind of sign. So where in the Bible does it say that God's going to put promises into my heart? It may be through a dream, through another person, through nature, through his word, or through something that seems like a coincidence. How about uh, reading the entrails of dead goats? Or why don't I go and see a psychic? Or how about have some tea leaves read? You know, that could be a sign. You know, I could be having one of those loose leaf tea drinks at a at a tea bar and and uh, and you know and then afterwards I can see what you know, if there's a sign in the tea leaves. It looks insignificant to others, 
But to you, you know it's God saying, I'm in control. I'm directing your steps. And it's important that we recognize these signs. That's what's going to help keep us. Where in the Bible does it outline the different signs that we should be looking for? I mean, Indian shamans would look for signs, you know, you ever see, oh man, I hate to use this in metaphor. You seen the movie Avatar? There were signs in nature that showed the will of Awa. Is that what, is that what we should look for? You know, like little, you know, you know, whether or not there's little seed pods floating through the air that to give us signs of God's favor. It's encouraged while we're waiting for the promises to come to pass. When we're tempted to get down, we can go back and say, no, I've got this sign. God confirmed it. Through a phrase that was spoken to me. Through- oh, good night. This is just utter confusion. So let me see if I got this straight. So I'm supposed to be getting promises from God inside of my heart. So my heart is now like an inbox for, you know, godly emails. So, it's, so I, I, I could be sitting here at my desk, you know, quietly reading my Bible or, you know, studying theology or something. And all of a sudden, my heart will go ding. That, it, 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 well, you know, maybe I have a sound for that. Hang on a second. No, 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 not that one, not that. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I can. Uh, I, uh, there we go. You have mail from God. So I've got to, and, and I and I open up my heart, and there it is, right there. There's a promise from God inside of my heart. <gasps> wow! Thank you, God. That's so great. But how do I know that the promise is going to come to pass? Well, according to Joel Osteen, I now need to start looking for little signs you know, out there somewhere. So I, I, I decided, you know, I'm going to go on a walk, you know. And so while I'm walking, what happens is, is that all of a sudden there's a red cardinal that flew in front of me while I was walking. And, and see, red is the color of blood. And that reminds me of the blood of Christ, which then tells me that's God saying, guess what, Chris? That's my little sign to you that I'm going to make good the promise that I put inside your heart. Oh, good night. Through a dream that I had, through the time I woke up singing. If you can remember not just the promise, but the time God confirmed it with a sign, that's going to give you the faith to stand strong and see the promise come to fulfillment. Can you believe that there are millions of people worldwide that are watching this and think, oh, this is what the Bible teaches. They're being lied to. A house where my parents used to live, they had large windows in the den that looked out to a courtyard. It was actually a townhome. Every day for months, this little red bird, a cardinal, would come into the courtyard, sit on a branch right by the window in the den. It's a sign. See, because I, I, that's exactly what I was thinking about. Cardinals. By the way, <laughs> Scout's Honor here. I had not listened to the sermon up to this point. I have not gotten this far in the sermon. This is one of those sermons I just kind of preview the first few minutes of and go, oh, I got to do this. I did not know that he was going to talk about cardinals. It must be a sign. My mother loves birds. She would sit there and watch that little bird and enjoy it so much. She got to where she looked forward to that bird coming by each day. This went on for five or six months. Just like clockwork, every afternoon the little cardinal would show up and spend three or four hours in the courtyard. Well, eventually he quit coming there. 
<laughs> it's a sign. It's a sign. If the Cardinals stop showing up, it's a sign from God. About a year later, my father went to be with the Lord, and now my mom was living at home by herself. And after being married for nearly 50 years, she was having to make some adjustments. I'm sure there were times that she was tempted to feel lonely, to get down and discouraged. Do you know what happened? That little cardinal started coming back to the courtyard once again. Every day, singing, chirping, having a good time. That wasn't a coincidence. That wasn't a lucky break. That was a sign from the creator of the universe. <laughs> oh. Did you learn this from Native American shamans? That was almighty God saying to my mother, I'm still in control. I still have a plan. Everything's going to work out. Maybe it could just mean that the cardinal migrated back to that area. You know, I don't normally see the cardinals in Indiana, Indiana um, during the wintertime. See them in the summer, but I'm thinking they migrate or they hit me. I just whatever. See, God controls the whole universe. He controls nature. He controls animals. If you'll be sensitive, you will see the hand of God at work, even in small things. So you got to be sensitive to the signs. Yeah, you, you know, you got to be careful out there because, I mean, if there's snails like driving, you know, like, you know, doing their thing across your sidewalk, that could be a sign, too. They, you, know, you need to look to, at the snail trails to see if the, the snail trails spell anything. That's God talking to you, showing you a sign, letting you know he's going to bring those promises to pass. David understood this principle. He said in Psalm 86, 17. Uh, Psalm 86, 17. If you have your Bible, let's go there quick. We're going to do a little undercutting here. Uh, Psalm 86, uh, verse 17. Yeah, um, if you have your Bible, what we're going to do is we're going to read Psalm 86, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, I think it ends at verse 17, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, it ends at verse 17. So we're going to read Psalm 86. And let's just read it in context. Let's see if this, does Psalm 86 teach the, that God is going to put a promise in your heart, number one. And number two, after God puts a promise in your heart, you need to be keep paying attention and sensitive to the little signs out there. You look for little birdies and things like that that could be pointing you to the sign that he's going to fulfill the promise that he stuck in your heart. Let's see. Does Psalm 86 teach this? Let's, let's read it. <clears throat> uh, verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I'm godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. 
For you are great, and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, you have helped me and you have comforted me. Psalm 86 is a fantastic psalm. It shows the mercy of God and it teaches salvation by grace through faith. And it points us in many words to the loving kindness and saving act of God. It says nothing whatsoever about God putting a vision or a dream in your heart and then promising to show you signs out there that that vision will come to pass or that dream will come to pass. Instead, it teaches us to praise God for his mercy, to beseech God on behalf of our needs in the, in the face of our enemies, and it tells us that we have a, a gracious, forgiving, loving, and kind God. And that there are no other gods, that God alone is God. Read Psalm 86 in context, and you can, I mean, you can plumb the depths of this psalm for many, many years and not exhaust it. And pull in all the different passages that, that also express these very truths about God and his saving work and his mercy and love and faithfulness and kindness and grace. Yeah. Unfortunately, Joel Osteen here is ripping Psalm 86, verse 17 out of context, spinning a complete lying yarn, and basically claiming, oh yeah, see, the, how do you know that God, what are the signs of God's favor in your life? Well, first of all, God's going to put a dream in your heart, a promise inside of your heart, and then he's going to give you little signs about little birdies out there, and those little birdies are going to show you that that, 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 that that's a sign from God, that, that's, that that promise he put in your heart is going to come to pass. <laughs> yeah, and he's ripped Psalm eighty six seventeen out of context to say that, and yet Psalm 86 doesn't say any of those things. We continue. God, send me a sign of your favor. Notice David was on the offensive. He wasn't waiting around to see if there was going to be a sign. His attitude was, God, I know you promised you would give me a sign. So I'm asking you to confirm what you put in my heart. Yeah, the Psalm 86 doesn't say any of that. You're lying to these people, Joel. I wonder what would happen if we would be as bold as David and say, God, give me a sign that this property is going to sell. Give me a sign that my child's going to come back home. 
give me a sign that I'm going to meet the right person. I mean, this is just rank superstition at this point. I mean, is this a, this is where Joel Osteen has gone to? Complete shamanistic, animistic superstition? I mean, really? You've got to be kidding me. If you'll be bold enough to ask, God promises he will confirm that word by showing you some kind of sign. That means he'll do something out of the ordinary, something unusual. Yeah, you know, look for cats barfing, you know, and, and when they barf, you know, and they hack up a hairball. You know, see if, the, if you know, the you know, you might want to pick through there to see if there's any signs in the... Uh... <sighs> to where you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, it was the hand of God confirming what he's already put in your heart. This is what King Hezekiah did. He was very sick and close to death. And the prophet Isaiah showed up at the palace and said, Hezekiah, sorry, but God says you're about to die. Your time here on earth is done. Of course, that wasn't the news Hezekiah was hoping for. He began to pray and plead with God. Before Isaiah could leave the palace grounds, God spoke to him and said, Isaiah, go back and tell Hezekiah, I'm going to extend his life by 15 more years. Yeah, and that didn't turn out to be good news because the son born to him during those 15 years turned out to be one tyrant of an idolatrous king. That's a different story. When Hezekiah got the news, of course, he was thrilled, but he wanted confirmation. I can hear him saying, Isaiah, I'm very grateful, very happy, but I need a sign. God promised he would confirm this word. I need something to encourage my faith. Isaiah didn't say, Hezekiah, would you leave God alone? He gave you a promise, man. Just stand on it. No, he said in 2 Kings 20 verse 9, this is the sign from the Lord to prove he will do what he promised. Okay, so here's the deal. When Isaiah the prophet shows up at your house and tells you something and promises you, then you can ask for a sign. I'm seriously. This passage is not normative for anybody. No, Jesus didn't teach, and this is how you do it, guys. The sun will go backwards 10 degrees. They went outside and looked at the shadows on the sundial, and sure enough, instead of going forward, those shadows begin to go backwards. Now, every time Hezekiah was tempted to get discouraged and think that he wouldn't get well, he would not only thank God for the promise, but he would remember the time God confirmed it by showing him a sign. He would think, if God can cause the sun to go backwards, then he can heal my body. If God can cause me to wake up singing, he can cause me to stand up here and minister. If God can cause a little cardinal to come into my mom's courtyard to cheer her up, surely God can take care of my mother and give her a new beginning. God gave Hezekiah this sign to encourage his faith. God wants to do the same thing for us. Really, where does the Bible say that? Where does the Bible say that God wants to do the same thing for us? I mean, he's going to put a promise in our heart, and then he's going to confirm it with all kinds of weird, superstitious signs. I mean, if you wake up singing, you see a cardinal, if snails write something on your sidewalk. I mean, ugh. God knows that when we're standing on his promises, believing to accomplish a dream, to overcome an illness, to get out of debt, at times, it can... Really, where 
oh, that's right, this is all subjective. So apparently God's going to give a, give you a promise that he, he's going to get you out of debt, that he's, yeah, uh-huh, that he's going to heal in, uh, a sickness, and, and you just need to look for the signs, you know, and, and of course, then, of course, if you have a, you know, like, fatal illness, and maybe you're suffering from cancer, and, you know, a cardinal lands on your windowsill, um, that may or may not be a sign that you're, I mean, that could, no, that could go either way. I mean, that might be a sign that, well, you're toast, you know, got, you're dead. You might want to get your things in order. (sighs) This is just, this is superstition. This is not biblical Christianity. Can seem impossible. Every voice tells us it's not going to happen. You're too old. It's been too long. You made too many mistakes. It's easy to get discouraged and give up on these promises. But if we can just learn to do like David and say, God, give me a sign of your favor. Uh, yeah, you read 80, Psalm 86 completely out of context. That's not what David did, nor is it prescriptive. The Bible doesn't teach us to do this. You're just making stuff up here, Joel. You're teaching rank superstition, mythology to boot. Because the Bible doesn't promise that God's going to heal all of your diseases. God doesn't promise that he's going to get you out of debt. doesn't promise he's going to give you the dream job of your life. Give me a sign that my health is going to improve. Give me a sign that this relationship has your blessing. It's scriptural to ask for a sign of God's favor. That's your faith being released. And faith is what allows God to do amazing things. I received a letter. What? Faith allows God to do amazing things? Really, where does it say that in the Bible? Apparently, God is subject to faith. See, faith is what allows God to do amazing things. Faith is what allows God. See, God, you know, he's got his hands tied up there, you know. He wants to be released to do amazing things, but you have to activate your faith before you can do that. Good luck. I hope you can figure out how to do it because... Joel, well, he's selling you something, but he ain't giving you the historic Christian faith. As confessed in either the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, uh, the story he's telling you, <laughs> it's a lie. Letter from a young lady. She lost her husband at 29 years old. He was killed in a motorcycle accident. They had two beautiful daughters. Of course, her world was turned upside down. It was difficult, but she stood on the promise that God would give her beauty for ashes, joy for mourning. Several years later, she met a young man and fell in love, and they decided to get married. And although she was happy, down deep she felt a little bit guilty. She believed that her first husband would want her to go on with her life and remarry, but she was constantly dealing with these lingering thoughts of doubt. A week before she left for Hawaii to get remarried, she got down on her knees and said, God, I'm asking you to give me a sign so I'll know that I have your blessing and my first husband's blessing. She said, Joel, I'm not too good at seeing signs, so I asked for something obvious. They were going to get married outdoors on the beach there in Hawaii. She asked God to give her a rainbow in the sky. After she thought about it, She felt like that was too far out, too extreme. Those thoughts came saying, who do you think you are? God's not going to give you a rainbow. Talked her out of it. She finally thought, well, maybe I'll just see a butterfly at the ceremony or maybe a beautiful sunset. 
How about hornets or bumblebees? Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll settle for church mice. I, oh, man. Let me know that I'm making the right decision. Didn't think anything more about it. The day of the wedding, just as the ceremony started, out of nowhere, there appeared not only one beautiful rainbow, but there were two beautiful rainbows lighting up the sky. Unbelievable. I, do I need a crucified? I've heard stories like this from pagans. I've heard stories like this from people in the New Age and Mormons and unbelievable. Christianity doesn't teach this. this these are nice uh, Hallmark greeting card spiritual type stories. Uh, you can get this in Chicken Soup for the Soul if you... Uh, Unbelievable. Un- this is not biblical Christianity at all. This makes you feel good. Oh, it sure is entertaining, but it's not bringing you to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It isn't telling you about the saving work of the Holy Trinity for you as recorded in the scriptures. Unbelievable. The lady that was coordinating the wedding said she had done weddings there for over 20 years and never seen that happen once before. Soon as they got through taking their wedding pictures, the rainbows quietly disappeared. She said, Joel, I know one rainbow was God saying, you have my approval. And the second rainbow was God saying, you have your first husband's blessing as well. She closed the letter by saying, who would have ever thought you could ask God to give you a rainbow and he'd not only give you one, but he'd give you two. Friends, that's the kind of God we serve. He likes to outdo himself. But here's my point. I don't believe she would have seen those rainbows if she had not been bold enough to ask. Some of you never see any signs, but it's because you're not asking. God wants to do something amazing in your life. He wants to do things to strengthen your faith, to uplift your spirits. But he's waiting for us to take the first step. We have not because we ask not. That's the law. That's right. If you want to see signs and wonders, you have to ask for them. You know, this is just completely different than biblical Christianity. Unbelievable. I don't even know what to make of this. I mean, this is just animistic superstition. I don't know how else to categorize it. Those promises that you're standing on today, the dreams in your heart, the situations you're believing to turn around, dare to say, God, give me a sign of your favor. Give me a sign that I'm going the right direction. If you'll release your faith by asking, then be on the lookout, expecting God's goodness. He promises he will confirm that word by showing you some kind of sign. I'm not No, God's word does not say that anywhere. I defy you to find a passage that clearly says that. It doesn't. Saying that God's going to give us everything we ask for, and if we say we need a rainbow, there'll be a rainbow. No, we don't tell God what to do. We simply need to ask in faith and then trust God to do it his way. He's God. He knows how to confirm what he's saying to you. Oh, my, I just saw a butterfly fly by the uh, Pirate Christian Radio Studios, um, uh, uh, the window here. That's a sign that Joel Osteen's a heretic. But what I love about this young lady is her boldness. 
That took a lot of nerve to say, God, give me a rainbow. She could have thought, God's not that concerned about me. He's got bigger things to deal with. I can't bother God. No, understand, you are God's biggest deal. You are the apple of God's eye. You are his most prized possession. God. Oh, boy. Uh, as for you, you were dead in trespasses and sins, according to the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 2, when you once walked following the passions of the flesh. and Yeah. You're the apple of God's eyes. Yeah, this is just ego. Stro- there's no repentance. There's no sin. There's no forgiveness of sins. This isn't Christianity. This is ego-stroking heresy. And you can have your best life now, and you will go to hell. And God will say to you, you had your best life then. God knows when you get up and when you sit down. He knows when you feel lonely, discouraged, when you're overwhelmed. This sounds like Santa Claus. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for him. Yeah, this is, he, oh, this is Santa Claus is God. Got it. If you're going to see these signs of God's favor to build your faith, to help you overcome obstacles, then you've got to do like this young lady. Rise up with a boldness, understanding who you are, a child of the Most High God. Value. You mean a sinner in need of a Savior for whom Christ died on the cross, shed his blood, right? That, that... Valuable, chosen, set apart, crowned with favor. Now you've got to put your shoulders back, hold your head up high, and dare to say like David, God, give me a sign that promotion is coming. Give me a sign that this depression is leaving. Give me a sign that my child is going to break this addiction. When you ask, you're releasing your faith. You're saying, God, I believe you can do what you promised. God, I believe you're bigger than what the medical report says. I believe you're greater than what my bank account looks like. I believe you're stronger than what the critics are telling me. I may not see a way, but God, I know you have a way and you will bring these promises to pass. The Bible doesn't promise that to Christians. Jesus promised persecution. I remember when my mother was so sick in 1981 with terminal cancer. Didn't look like she was going to make it. We had been praying and believing week after week, but she wasn't getting any better. My father had this attitude we're talking about, saying, God, send me a sign of your favor. One night we got home from church and... My father went to his bedroom to change clothes and he put his Bible on the bed and it just so happened to fall open in the middle. He didn't think anything about it. But as he was hanging his coat up on the hanger, for some reason he felt drawn to the Bible. As he was watching it, the pages began to flip and flip and flip, just like someone was intentionally turning them. He thought, that's odd. How do you know it was God and not Satan? Satan knows how to quote the Bible, by the way. And uh, Joel Osteen's father was a word, faith, prosperity heretic. The air conditioner wasn't on. There wasn't a fan. He went over there, and one of the pages is sort of halfway flipped up on the other. The first... So this is the miracle that supports the, uh, the pr- this message. I mean, he knows this is true because, well, here's a miraculous event. 
See, I mean, how do you explain the pages moving all by themselves? The air conditioner wasn't on. This had to be a miracle. It was as if somebody was flipping the pages. This is a miracle being being given to you to support this message. This message, by the way, that cannot be supported from the clear teaching of the Word of God. So we have to go to, well, a miracle outside of the Bible to support it. False signs and wonders to mislead, if possible, even the elect. That's what that was referring to. That's what Jesus was warning us about. This is a miracle, the the report of a miracle that's supposed to support this heretical message that contradicts the clear teaching of the Word of God. But hey, Joel's dad, he had a miraculous event happen. See? No. You reject it because... The gospel, the message, the faith that he's proclaiming is not the historic apostolic Christian faith. First verse that he saw, the one that totally stuck out, was Psalm 105, 37. It says, God brought them out with silver and gold, and there was not one sickly person among them. When he read that, it was like electricity shot through his whole body. He knew God was saying, my mother was going to come out healthy and whole. Month after month went by. We didn't see any signs of improvement. But instead of getting discouraged, we would always go back and remember that night that God turned the pages in the Bible. That was a sign from God to my father confirming those promises that we were standing on. And I don't know if it was the air conditioner or maybe just a natural gust of air, but whatever caused it, ultimately we knew it was the hand of God speaking faith to our heart. We chose to believe that it was God confirming His Word. That was nearly 30 years ago, and today my mother is still healthy and strong, going 90 miles an hour every single day. But I wonder how many times we miss the signs God is giving us. We think, oh, wow, the pages on the Bible flip. That's a good scripture. Oh, wow, there was a rainbow in the sky. No, be sensitive to what God is doing. There's no such thing as a coincidence. No such thing as a lucky break. That's the hand of God at work in your life. It could very well be God confirming a promise that he's placed in your heart. Notice how this all gets applied equally to a bunch of people. It uh, doesn't matter if you're a believer or unbeliever. I mean, this is all, you're the apple of God's eye. Nothing about repentance and forgiveness of th- sins. Those who are in Christ. No, no, no. This is just universally applied to everybody. A few years ago, I was out running. I'd had a long day and there were some situations I was hoping would turn around. And I was wondering why it was taking so long and when it was ever going to get any better. Just kind of frustrated and stressed out trying to make things happen. While I was running, it was very windy and the leaves were blowing off the trees. And one thing I've always liked to do is to try to catch leaves. So while I was running, I was grabbing here and grabbing there, but I couldn't catch these leaves. They were very small. They were darting all around. But at one point... Uh, Notice he's not preaching the Word of God. We've gotten one verse and one summary of a biblical story and uh, the rest of stories about his life and lives of people in his church that apparently support and buttress this amazing sermon 
uh, laying out the doctrine of being sensitive to signs. There was this huge burst of air. There must have been a thousand leaves falling all around me. And I thought, wow, this is my chance. And I started grabbing and grabbing and grabbing, grabbing. But I could not catch one single leaf. I couldn't believe it. And here I was out running to try to relieve stress. And I was getting more stressed out because I couldn't catch a leaf. And finally, I just said, forget about it. Kept on running. About 15 minutes later, while I was still running... As this arm went up into the air, just a natural motion, I felt something hit the palm of my hand. It's a sign! It's a sign! I opened it up, and it was this leaf. I couldn't believe it. I've been running practically my whole life, and never had a leaf fall into my hand. That was God saying to me, Joel, you don't have to grab. You don't have to try to make things happen. You don't have to live frustrated. He was saying, it's a miracle. By the way, this is a false sign. This is a miraculous event that's supposed to prove what he's saying is true, even though God's word doesn't teach what he's saying. This is a false sign, false wonder, false miracle designed to deceive. Joel's not pointing you to Christ and the saving work of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh Uh-uh. He's pointing you to be sensitive to basically superstitious signs. Yet we read in the creeds the work of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the correct summary of the Christian faith, the apostolic meta-narrative of the Scripture. None of that is being discussed here. None of it is pointing us to that. Everything he's saying contradicts those creeds. Joel Osteen is bringing you a different religion. He's not bringing you the historic Christian faith. He's a heretic. Just trust me and I'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, every time something is not happening as fast as I would like, or I'm tempted to worry if it's going to work out, I'll go back and get my leaf out and look at it. This leaf reminds me that the creator of the universe is in control of my life. It reminds me It reminds me that the most high God is directing my steps, making my crooked places straight, surrounding me with his favor. If God can cause a leaf to blow out of a tree at the exact right time, to hit the palm of my hand while I'm running in motion, then surely God can get us to where we're supposed to be. And no person can stop us. No economy can stop us. No sickness can stop you. No bad break can stop you. If God be for you, who dare be against you? You need to go back and remember the great things as God has done. Go back and get your leaf. I'm convinced every one of us has things we know had to be the hand of God. So we're supposed go find the things that God has done for you. Every one of us has a leaf. I, I just am absolutely dumbfounded. Hello, the scriptures tell us the things that God has done for us. I just read it in the summary of the Christian faith. The apostolic summary of the Christian faith that we read in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, which summarize what Scripture teaches that God has done for us. 
I believe in one God, the God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible and in one Lord Jesus Christ. That, hello, that's what the scriptures teach God has done for us. It's, it's there summarized. I don't need any leaves. He was begotten of his father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the father by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, was made man, was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered, buried. On the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I don't need a leaf. I've got the scriptures that tell me all of these amazing things that God has done for me. Leaf? I need to go and look at the signs I might have missed? Hello, have you heard of the cross? Have you heard of the empty tomb? Those are a little bit bigger than signs. And those are the miracles that the apostles pointed to because they point us to the saving work of Christ for us in his death and resurrection. I don't need leaves. I don't need cardinals and little birdies. I have Christ and I have the cross and I have and I have the empty tomb and I have my baptism and I have the Lord's Supper. Why on earth would I want to trade all of those treasures for leaves and little birdies? That's this is ridiculous. Somebody you bumped into introduced you to your spouse. A coworker unexpectedly resigned. And all of a sudden, you were promoted. A stranger came by to help. They spoke one phrase that spoke volumes to your heart. Those are signs of God's favor. Just like my leaf, when you're tempted to get down, think it's not going to work out, go get your leaf out and say, no, I remember when God opened up that door. I remember when God made a way. I remember when God spared my life. I remember when God healed my child. Remembering the great things God has done is going to give you the strength to keep fighting that good fight of faith. Because you'll know. Notice he's not pointing us really to the great things that God has truly done. If God did it for you once, he'll do it for you again. And it's good to keep something in front of you that reminds you of God's goodness. That's why I keep this leaf in my desk. Every time I see it, it reminds me that God is in complete control. I remember when we were trying to acquire this new facility, there was a council member that I could not get in touch with. I'd called and called, but he was either always too busy or out of the office. There was some excuse, and he would never call me back. And after doing this for several months, I finally decided to quit trying. I knew that he was avoiding us. I'd already been told by his staff very clearly that he was not for us. I thought, well, I'll just write him off. No use wasting our time and energy. And during the process of trying to get this facility, there were plenty of opportunities like that to where we could have gotten discouraged. But I did just what I'm asking you to do. Every morning I got up and said, God, give me a sign of your favor, something to encourage my heart. One evening, I was in a sporting goods store trying on some tennis shoes. It was very late. The store was just about to close. It was cold and rainy outside. There was hardly anybody else in the store. 
But at one point, when I looked up from trying on those shoes, that council member was standing just a few feet in front of me. And I thought, God, you are so good because he is caught and he has nowhere to run. Friends, God has a way of having you at the right place at the right time. He came right up to me very friendly and said, Oh, Pastor Osteen, I've been meaning to get back to you. I've just been so busy. And I stepped back in case the lightning struck. <laughs> he went on to say, I want you to know I'm 100% for you. You can definitely count on my vote. I was amazed. I had been told very clearly that he was totally... This, these are false signs. These are false miracles that support a false gospel to deceive, if possible, even the elect. ...against us, and he would never vote for us. It says in Proverbs, God can turn the heart of a king. That means the people that are so against you, God can suddenly cause them to be totally for you. See, God is not just in control of your life. He's even in control of your enemies. And those people that are so against you right now, trying to hold you back and keep you from your dreams, don't waste your time worrying about it. They can't stop your destiny. Uh, who are the enemies, the ones who are holding you back and keep you from your dreams? Yeah, because apparently Christ came and died on the cross so that you can have your dreams. Right. Destiny, God controls your destiny. <laughs> if you need them to be for you so you can get to where you're supposed to be, then God will either change their heart or he'll simply move them out of the way. But no person can keep you from your God-given destiny. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross that you can have your God-given destinies. Notice how Satan keeps his... Um, Victims <laughs> very preoccupied with themselves and, and looking inside of themselves and has them so distracted away from the focus of Christ so that, you know, he keeps them comfortable, distracted and, well, um, completely preoccupied with themselves and now preoccupied with looking for signs everywhere that, uh, you know, that when he finally does kill them and drag their little carcasses to hell, uh, they never will have saw it coming because they were looking the wrong way. Yeah, that's, that's how Satan works. That one encounter of unexpectedly meeting the council member, finding out he was for us, that was a sign of God's favor. Yeah, I just want to remind you, uh, neither the rainbow story, the council person story, or the story about the leaf, none of those appear in the Bible. Yeah, that's true. There is no um, epistle of Joel. Now, there, the, the, there's a prophet by the name of Joel, but the epistle of Joel, is, is, it's not there. Yeah, And if you read the prophet Joel, yeah, he doesn't talk about any of this stuff. Yeah, What you're getting here, this is just complete extra-biblical uh, mythology that has its origin in the heart and mind of Joel Osteen as apparently inspired by Satan himself. More than the one vote, that was God saying to me, Joel, I've got your back. Don't worry if somebody's not for you. I'll turn the hearts that need to be turned. I'll fight your battles. I'll direct your steps. My favor will get you to where you're supposed to be. And that's exactly what happened. Here we are today enjoying God's blessings. We saw the promises come to pass.
Many of you have been standing on promises for a long time, believing for something to change, but you don't see anything happening. You could easily get discouraged. But understand, just like in my situation, God is in complete control of your life. People may have tried to stop you. Circumstances may have tried to talk you out of it. Your own thoughts may be telling you that it's all over. But the good news is God has the final say and he has every intention of getting you to where you're supposed to be. Really? Where does the scripture say that? God promises us death, suffering, persecution. Wow. Talk about buttering up people and completely flattering their little egos and puffing them up with lies and untruth. Uh, this is just breathtaking heresy here. Now you got to dare say like David, God, give me a sign of your favor. Give me a sign that that promotion is coming. Give me a sign that this situation is going to turn around. Then when you're tempted to get discouraged, you can go back and say, no, I remember the rainbow in the sky. Yeah, this is a formula for creating atheists because, yeah, when that promise that you think God put on your heart but really was just a piece of undigested beef and a little bit of a heart, uh, you know, heartburn, if you had taken a Pepsid, you wouldn't have mistaken it for God laying a promise on your heart. Um, yeah, when that doesn't come to pass despite the fact that you had a little bird sit on your window, um, the, you know, what's going to end up happening is is that uh, you're going to end up becoming an atheist and just basically... Uh, thinking this whole Jesus thing is stupid and for the birds. And, well, you will have never really heard the biblical gospel, and uh, you'll be perfectly inoculated against Jesus and the biblical gospel should anyone present it to you because you think, I've already tried the Jesus thing, and it doesn't work. Well, the Jesus thing never promises this. The historic Christian faith doesn't promise this. It's not about that. Ugh. Yeah, this is a perfect circle of deceit here. I remember the pages of the Bible flipping on their own. I remember catching the leaf. I remember bumping into the council member. I remember when I woke up singing. Yeah, none of those are in the Bible, Joel. If you can remember the signs God gave you, it'll breathe new life into your dreams. And it won't matter if the promise takes a week, a year, or 20 years. Deep down, you'll know that you know God is still going to bring that promise to pass. I believe that many of you... If you believe this, I have some uh, beachfront property I'd like to sell you in um, New Mexico, northern New Mexico, right next to Utah. Yeah, Pacific Ocean view there is just fantastic. Yeah, don't look at a map, though. Yeah, that, that'll just confuse you. Trust me, this is I, it's some great beachfront property there in northern New Mexico. This week, you're going to see a sign of God's favor. Something is going to happen to where you say... I know that was the hand of God showing me that he's in control of my life. Be expecting God's goodness. Keep looking for God's favor. If you do that, God will not only confirm the word with some kind of sign, but you're going to see Ephesians 3.20 at work. God is going to do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond. Yeah, just read Ephesians 3.20 in context. And the way you do that, begin at Ephesians one verse 1, then read all the way through to Ephesians 3.20 and keep reading all the way to the end of Ephesians, I think chapter 6 and somewhere, you know, somewhere in there. Um, 
Yeah, that's read that when you don't don't stand on Ephesians 3:20 cuz Paul didn't write Ephesians 3:20 to be understood apart from the other stuff surrounding it both in front of it and behind it. So you go ahead if you want to stand on Ephesians 3:20 you do that but first read it in context cuz you can read the epistle to the Ephesian church yeah you can read about 20 25 minutes no problem. It's really easy to read and then when you read it in context you'll understand Exactly what it is that Paul's talking about there, because Paul doesn't teach you that God's going to lay um, uh, a, um, a dream on your heart or a promise on your heart and then confirm it with signs like little birdies and leaves and and rainbows and butterflies. No, that, that in fact, Ephesians three twenty doesn't say any of that. None. And if you don't if you don't believe me, then go and read it in context. And and then if you still don't believe me, get some glasses and reread it. Because it doesn't talk about any of that stuff. John, I believe it. I declare it over each one of you in the name of Jesus. And if you receive it, can you say amen and amen? Amen. We never like to close our broadcast. <sighs> okay, yeah, well, well, listen to another myth. Here we go. Without giving you an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Yeah, I, why would I need to do that? Oh, it's so that I can have my dreams. Okay, that's right. Would you pray with me? So if you'd like to have your dreams uh, realized and uh, don't want anyone to stand in your way and, and want to have a sign this week that God's going to bring your dreams to pass, then here, pray this prayer. Just say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. Uh, what's a sin? Yeah, he didn't explain that, did he? Come into my heart. I make you my Lord and Savior. Friends, if you prayed that simple prayer, we believe you got born again. Oh, brother. Yeah. You also believe in the Easter Bunny, too, I'm sure. Yeah, because that's what makes a Christian. If you, you see, if you just prayed that simple prayer without any, uh, no explanation as to what a sin is, repentance, forgiveness of sins, Christ shed blood on the cross, none of that. Okay? So <clears throat> you'll notice that today's theme has to do with the creeds, okay, and what they're really for. They've been given to us for a reason, and the early church used them, and the church throughout its history has used them. So now I'm going to go back, and I'm going to reread the Nicene Creed, which is a summary of scriptures. It's the meta-narrative of the Bible. And we find out from the, from the early Christian church fathers that they believed that this summary of Scripture was handed down to them from the apostles themselves. They called it the rule of faith, and they called it the ancient or apostolic tradition, which basically is a summary of the Christian faith. Now, <clears throat> see if what you heard Joel say has anything to do with what, I just, uh, what I'm going to read. Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. And he was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, he suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, 
who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Did Joel Osteen present to you anything pertaining to the historic Christian faith? Anything that was even remotely biblically accurate or true? No. His creed contradicts that creed. His teaching contradicts the Word of God. What are we left to conclude then? Joel Osteen's a heretic. He teaches a different Christ, a different gospel, a, basically a different message that doesn't even remotely resemble what the Christian church has confessed and taught from its beginning. It's not in Scripture. It's not even in the history of the Christian church. What he's teaching is just rank heresy. He's not helping people. He's sending them to hell. And he's preaching false signs and wonders and and uh, little events and, and signs that, that, you know, butterflies and, and rainbows and leaves and, and cardinals and, and all, all that is a distraction away from the saving work of the Holy Trinity and Christ and what he's done for you. Time for the church to wake up and to say enough is enough. These men are heretics and they are liars and they're sending people to hell and they're making a ton of money doing it. That's not what Christ taught and that's not what the church has received. What we received, we passed on and that's that, that historic Christian faith. If somebody isn't bringing you that, they're lying to you and they're bringing to you a false Christ, a false gospel, and a different God and everything else. And they're scratching itching ears. And these people who are buying into this and saying amen and all that kind of stuff and cheering there at that basketball arena, they're on their way to hell. And that prayer at the end, that don't save nobody. He ain't bringing you the historic Christian faith or the biblical gospel. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Yeah, that's right. We depend upon you to help us do what we do. The reality is is that we barely get by. I'm not here to make a million bucks. I'm here to preach the gospel to you. I'm here to defend the Christian faith. And if you believe in what we're doing and see its importance, then we need your help. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. 
You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.